Well, it is good to be here in this space. If this is, I know many of you were here last week, but this is your first time here in this space. Welcome. Glad you're here. There's something I want to clean up from last week since he wasn't here um, when we honored him um, and thanked him. Jonathan, would you just wave there in the back? Um, this man, in addition to the names that we, we clapped for last week, this man has put countless hours into this project, and we are so very grateful for what you've done. Uh, like I said last week, on August 20th is going to be our official celebration and dedication. We're going to be honoring many of the people who have put long hours into making this happen, looking to the future, and I'm just excited to be here. Also, I want you to meet someone else. Danny, where'd you go? There you are. Danny's back there. Um, we have, uh, as a church, joined a network of churches um, called Converge Network, and this is uh, because they're right in line with our mission and vision to make disciples and plant churches. Um, I don't think it was any accident that last week um, we had our global missions partner here telling us about the church that we helped to plant in Costa Rica the funds for our global Christmas offering, building them a building the same week that we got into our new space. Well, our vision is to continue to do that, and the Converge Network is going to be helping us, resourcing us um, for the fulfillment of our mission and vision. So meet Danny if you get a chance. We live in an angry world. You don't have to look far to see it. Angry drivers, angry neighbors, Angry Karens, my apologies if your name is Karen, angry talk show pundits, angry social media mobs. Every direction you look, you're going to get hit, hit in the face with anger. It's easy to find angry people. There's angry cities, angry countries in an angry world. And it's easy to get swept up into this in our culture. Because as a pastor friend of mine, a former student who has far surpassed his teacher, um, because I'm going to be leaning on some of his insights from my message today, uh, his name is Philip Miller, he, he said this, our anger in our culture is being stoked by cable news, which has learned that rage is good for ratings. It's being amplified by our social media that has learned that anger is good for algorithms. It's being exploited by our politicians who've learned that vitriol is good for votes. I thought that was a great way to say it. And it doesn't matter if something's true anymore. If it can make people angry and increases ratings or clicks or votes, it's presented as truth and manipulated for profit, for popularity, or power. It's making me angry just thinking about it. <laughs> How many of you guys got angry at something this week? Let me give, see a show of hands. Okay, maybe about 70% of us. It's good to know I'm not alone. Now, not all anger is bad. I want you to hear that from the get-go. Not all anger is bad. Anger can be a healthy emotion when there's injustice and something proactive needs to be done about it to make things right. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4, be angry and sin not. So there is a type of anger that does not, a righteous anger, that doesn't lead to sin. But as we're going to learn from Jesus today, there's, there's also such a thing as unrighteous anger, an anger that does lead us down the path of sin. For instance, anger that erupts outwardly into rage, instantly wounding the people around us from the shrapnel of the explosion. Everybody kind of knows, okay, yeah, that, 
that was out of line, you know? Or there's anger that's bottled up inside. It doesn't explode outwardly, but it's simply allowed to simmer on a low boil, a low-grade fever, slowly building into a bitterness that eats away at our hearts like caustic acid, and then if we're bumped, spills out on the people and burns them as well. So let me ask a question. How, then, can we be angry and sin not, as Paul says? How can our hearts be marked more by peaceful relationships than angry conflict? How can we let go of bitterness and embrace forgiveness? What does it look like to pursue reconciliation rather than revenge? In other words, here's our question for the morning. Will you ask it with me? As we apprentice the way of Jesus, what would he have us do with our anger? As we apprentice the way of Jesus, what would he have us do with our anger? Well, welcome to Fellowship Nashville. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the teaching pastors here. And we're going to be continuing. I have the pleasure of serving as your tour guide this morning for the next 28 minutes as we continue our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount, which we've subtitled Apprenticing the Way of Jesus. Now, I've seen a couple of you get out your phones and start the timer, but yes, it might be 29 minutes. Don't hold me to 28. And in this section that we're about to dive into, Jesus begins to talk about the topic of anger. Our passage today contains the first of six distinct, you've heard it said this, but I say to you this, statements from Jesus. And each of these statements is an illustration, a sermon illustration, like a good preacher, each of these statements is an illustration of something he's just covered, flowing out of his brief discussion of the Old Testament law that we studied together last week. If you weren't here for that, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Ryan did a great job presenting that passage. And that passage ended with a jarring declaration from Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. I want you to read this verse out loud with me that we covered last week. Matthew 5, verse 20. Let's say this together. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, why would this declaration have been jarring to the original audience? Why would it have shocked people? Well, that's because the scribes and the Pharisees were the good guys, not the bad guys. They were the ones who were considered to be the most righteous in all of Jewish society because they were very careful to obey the Old Testament law to the letter, to the T. They were squeaky clean, at least on the outside. The scribes and Pharisees taught that righteousness was all about external behavior. What God most, wants most from us is obedience. So shape up, clean up, get in line. They became experts at behavioral modification and sin management. Not unlike many religious people today who use an outside-in strategy for change. A sin management strategy that runs on the fuel of fear. You better shape up or God's going to get you. You better not do that. You better not screw up or others are going to look down on you. And fear grows. And I've shown you a variation of, of this diagram before, but here's how behavior modification, sin management typically works. Motivated by fear, you do more and try harder to be good. 
to obey. And if out of sheer willpower and self-discipline you happen to succeed like the scribes and Pharisees were able to do, what does it result in? Self-righteous pride. Pharisees notoriously looked down on everyone else who wasn't as righteous as they were. Now I see some of you kind of in the back sections kind of craning your neck to look around the speakers. We're going to fix that. Don't worry. Um, Just sit in the middle next week. Um, (laughs) But if if you're able to modify your behavior through self-discipline and willpower, it often leads to judgmental, self-righteous pride. But if you're like most normal people, if you're like me, I like to call people with the Britney Spears syndrome. Oops, I did it again. In spite of your best efforts to obey, you end up falling flat on your face. You you end up going right back to the same sin patterns and ruts that you usually get stuck in. And what does this lead to? Well, that failure often leads to self-loathing shame. Instead of self-righteous pride, now you're down in self-loathing shame, which makes you even what? More fearful, right? Which means, okay, I better do more and try harder to obey. And what happens is you end up bouncing back and forth between self-righteous pride when you're doing well and self-loathing shame when you screw up again. How many have been there? I tell you what, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. But even if you're able to find some measure, consistent measure of success by propping yourself up with self-discipline and willpower, putting on that veneer of self-righteousness, like the scribes and Pharisees, this really isn't the type of righteousness that God is after. Well, why not? Well, because Jesus tells us that's not enough. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees who are the experts at sin management and behavior modification, unless you're better than that, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. External self-righteousness motivated by fear doesn't work to enter the kingdom. You've got to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. A righteousness that is better than fear-based behavior modification. Why? Because God has never been about behavior modification motivated by fear. What he really desires is internal heart transformation motivated by what? Love. Love. And these two realities, external behavior modification motivated by fear and internal transformation motivated by love, are polar opposites. Jesus is telling us here that it's quite possible to obey the letter of the law while simultaneously breaking the spirit of the law, remaining far from the heart of God, isolated in our sin, removed from the kingdom of heaven. We need a righteousness that's not just about what we do on the outside, but a righteousness that is about who we are, where? On the inside. A righteousness that goes beyond behavior to the heart. And Jesus says in summary at the end of this chapter, we'll get to it, but I want to give you a teaser. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's what the requirement is. For entrance into the kingdom, you've got to be absolutely perfect just like God. 
In other words, the righteousness that is at home in the kingdom of heaven is a goodness like that of God himself that saturates all the way in and permeates all the way out. Not motivated by fear, but by love because God is love. And to help us understand what this kind of kind, this kind of loving goodness, this this type of inner righteousness looks like, Jesus gives us six sermon illustrations. The first one, like I said earlier, has to do with anger, which brings us to our passage today. Verse 21, let's read this together again. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. If you're familiar with the Ten Commandments from the Old Testament, you'll immediately recognize this is a, a restatement of the Sixth Commandment, so it says, you shall not murder. But it's important to note that Jesus is not contradicting the Old Testament. He's not saying, hey, that no longer applies. No, no. He's, he's saying the Pharisees have just misinterpreted and misapplied the Old Testament command not to murder. He's not pitting himself against the law. He's pitting himself against the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. The Pharisees would have asked, hey, have you murdered anybody? No? Okay, then. Well, good. You fulfilled the command. You can check that off the list. You've stopped short of murder, so you've done what God wants, and the righteousness, and you have the righteousness that he requires. Congratulations. You can rest easy. You did not a murderer? Good. But Jesus says, time out. Wait a minute. Not so fast. The problem runs deeper than this. I have a sticker on my hand. Don't know where that came from. Okay. You you might be obeying the, the letter of the law, but you're missing the spirit of the law. Of course you shouldn't murder. But if your heart is righteous like God's, if your heart is full of love like God's, you won't even let anger take root in your heart. Murder is the symptom. But anger in your heart is the disease. It's not enough to manage your sin by stopping at murder. You need a heart transformation. You need a heart transplant. Behavior modification by, may keep you out of jail, but it won't get you into the kingdom. Let's continue reading the rest of verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, there's an escalation here in verse 22 that I want us to observe together. It starts with what? Anger. Everyone who is angry with his brother. Then it escalates to contempt. Whoever insults his brother. Then escalates further into degradation. Whoever says, you fool. I'll I'll unpack that and explain what I mean by that in just a little bit and why, why I phrase it that way. And notice also that there's a corresponding ratcheting up of the consequences each time. First, you're liable to judgment, guilty of breaking the law of God. Secondly, you're liable to the council. That was the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, the the cultural equivalent of the Supreme Court of the day. If you're brought before those guys, you're in big trouble. That's a big deal. Finally, and most extreme, you're liable to what? The hell of fire itself in danger of eternal damnation. So so Jesus is pointing out a dangerous escalation here, anger that leads to contempt, that grows into degradation, and it's dangerous. Let's unpack what Jesus means by each of these things. Let's look at the anger here first. You know, the Greek word that's translated for us, angry, by, by our English versions here, is 
a, a word called orgizo. It's kind of fun to say, orgizo, okay? But it, it's actually, it might be fun to say, but it's a pretty insidious meaning. This isn't flash-in-the-pan type of anger that Jesus is referring to here. It's, it's sustained and cultivated anger. That's, that's what's behind this Greek term, orgizo. A smoldering anger, a slow-burning simmer on the inside, a settled indignation, an anger that takes up residence in the heart, an anger that's being fed, being nurtured, and allowed to fester and build. Orgizo also implies the type of anger, in addition to that, focus, that focuses on, on punishing the offender. As this internal simmer grows, so does the degree of malice and ill will associated with it that wants the offending party to pay and suffer the consequences, or at least feel the effect of indignation, that, the effect of our, our anger and indignation in some form or fashion, a cold shoulder, silent treatment, withholding forgiveness. You know, has someone ever offended you? Happens to me quite often. <laughs> has someone ever ruffled your feathers? And you maintained your composure in the moment. And then maybe you even congratulated yourself afterwards for, for holding your tongue. But then you go home and you replay the offense over and over and over again. Justifying your anger. Cultivating it. How dare that person treat me like this? What a jerk. I'm not going to give them the time of day ever again. Jesus is saying here, if you're cultivating anger in your heart, even if you maintain self-control and you don't erupt in rage, you're still guilty of breaking the law of God that says do not murder. Wow. A heart that gives orgizo anger a home is not a heart that's given a home in the kingdom. Let that sink in. And then Jesus goes on to point out that this type of internal seething, malicious anger typically escalates to what? Contempt. We see this in the next line of verse 22. Whoever insults his brother. Literally in the Greek it says, and maybe some of your translations reflect this. It says, whoever says raka to his brother. Now what does that mean? Well, raka is a, was a contemptuous insult that meant empty-headed or you idiot. And it's also an onomatopoeia. You know what an onomatopoeia is? That's fun to say as well. I don't know if I'm saying it right. Onomatopoeia? English majors? Did I say it right? Okay, good. I'm getting some thumbs up. It's basically a word that sounds like what it describes. So, raka. What did I just do? It's an onomatopoeia that sounds like what it describes. You're so disgusted by somebody that you... Raka. You empty-headed fool. Actually, fool's not yet. That comes later. You empty-headed one. The smoldering fire of anger has now escalated to the coldness of contempt. A posture of disdain that aims to shame the other person and signals to them that they aren't valued. They aren't worthy. They aren't welcome in your presence. They are disgusting to you, and so you hit them with an insult. Raka. Anger escalates to contempt, 
which then escalates even further into degradation. Whoever says, you fool, this is the Greek word moros, or where we get the English word moron, okay? You've all heard that word. Now, if we call somebody moron in our culture, it, it's an insult, but it's not that bad of an insult, right? It's not too much further than cotton-headed ninny-muggins or something like that. But you need to know that to call somebody a moron in this culture was basically the worst insult that you could possibly come up with. And it's easy to miss the shock of it here. So you may have never been asked to do this in church before, but I want you to think of the absolute worst thing that you could call somebody else when you're mad. What is it? Now, don't answer that question. Um, that was rhetorical, but I want you to think about it. There's, there's still some children present. Um, what is it? That would be the cultural equivalent of you fool in first century Jewish culture. Calling someone moron then meant that they were such an idiot that they were beyond God's redemption. It's a degrading insult that tears down and vilifies the other person. It's treating the other person as repugnant and irredeemable, a pimple on the face of life. It's a word used at the point where anger has reached such a level in our hearts that we're essentially telling the other person, go to hell, you worthless when anger reaches this level of escalation, it actively degrades the value of the offending party, hence the term that I use, degradation. Actively degrades the other person. My friend that I mentioned earlier named Philip Miller put it this way. I can't say it any better, so I'm going to quote him. It is the worst of anger and contempt all rolled into one. It's the dismissal of human worth. It's a violation of their existence, a desecration of their personhood. Jesus is telling us here that unchecked anger is what? Dehumanizing. Dehumanizing. That's such an important insight. At first, it seems like anger and murder. Man, those two things are so far apart from each other. But they're a lot closer together than we might first think. You know, people are made in the image of God, right? So murder is the destruction of the image of God. But what are we doing when we let anger fester and escalate? To treat another human being with hatred, contempt, and dismissive disgust. To reduce them to the worst parts of who they are. To shame and snub and degrade them. To view them as repugnant and irredeemable is to, what? Is to dehumanize them. It desecrates the image of God in them. So anger is not that far removed from murder. Murder destroys the physical image of God. Anger destroys the spiritual image of God in another person. So I can degrade and desecrate the image of God without ever pulling the trigger of a gun. And when I do... I'm also defacing, degrading, and desecrating the image of God in myself. Why? Because, my friends, our Father in heaven is not like this. We look less and less like our God when we allow anger to grow in our hearts unchecked. 
Not only does anger degrade the image of God in the offending party and in ourselves, unchecked anger also hurts innocent bystanders because it rarely stays contained between two people. Almost always puts shrapnel wounds into the lives of everyone in proximity. Angry hearts are destructive to the image of God everywhere. Which is why Jesus goes on to give the following instruction in verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Jesus has finished illustrating the escalation of anger, and now he's going to illustrate the de-escalation of love, the de-escalation of love. Starts with compassion, then moves towards reconciliation, and results in peace, relational peace. Let's take a closer look at these Two examples that Jesus gives. The first picture here is of a worshiper that's about to offer a sacrifice of worship to God. And we expect Jesus to say here, you know, if you're about to worship God, the worship service is starting, the worship band is starting to play, um, if you're translating it to our culture, and, and you realize that you have anger building in your heart, you're holding some resentment in your heart, stop what you're doing, take care of that anger first, because you can't worship God with a heart that's full of anger. But is that the direction that Jesus goes with it? No. I want you to look at this closely. The example Jesus gives here is that if you're about to worship God and you remember that someone else has anger in their heart against you. Someone else has cultivated anger, cultivated anger in their heart. This isn't even, isn't even your anger. It's their anger. If you remember that a fellow believer is on the dangerous, destructive, and dehumanizing anger escalation pathway, have compassion and go to them to rescue them, free them from that trap become so burdened that you attempt to rescue them from the dehumanizing ravages of their anger. You pursue reconciliation. You make peace. And then come back and offer your sacrifice of worship. I want you to catch the implications of this. Jesus is saying here that harmonious relationships within the family of God take priority over what? Worship. Wow. I have an obligation to go and rescue a brother who has cultivated anger against me. It's not even my anger, but it's still my responsibility. This type of compassion that pursues reconciliation for the good of the other, I'm telling you, this is not normal behavior. This is not natural tendency. It can't be mustered up by willpower. It can't be produced by self-improvement. It can't be formulated by doing more and trying harder. It can only flow from a heart that's motivated by love instead of by fear. A heart that reflects God's righteousness. A heart that's been transformed from the inside out by the self-sacrificial love of who? God himself. 
a heart that remembers that while it was still far off from God, what did God do? God took compassion, took initiative, and he pursued. He sent Jesus as an atoning sacrifice and made peace through his blood. He pursued us, the offending party. God had compassion on us. God pursued reconciliation with us. God made peace through Jesus. And now we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. So the first illustration Jesus gives is that of an angry brother, somebody within the fold, somebody within the family of God. Now he expands this. Okay, right now I was, okay, we can just apply this within the church and we're okay. No, 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 no. <laughs> Jesus is about to blow the door open here. Look what he goes, where he goes next, verse 25. Jesus gives another example of the de-escalation that flows out of love. And this is not a fellow believer, but this involves an angry enemy presumably an unbeliever, who is about to take you to court and make you pay. Jesus says, what would a heart transformed by love do here? It would be quick to apologize, quick to take responsibility, quick to settle things, quick to make peace. It would be less concerned about being right and more concerned about the setting the enemy free from their anger from the dehumanizing prison that they've built for themselves. It chooses to honor the image of God in an enemy, however unworthy they may be, and treat them as sacred and holy. A heart of righteousness that matches God's heart. This is radical. A heart of righteousness that matches God's heart, sees the image of God even in their enemy, and de-escalates the dehumanizing, desecrating, and destructive pattern of anger. What did Jesus say earlier? Let's put it up on the screen. I want you to read it with me. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. Why? Why are the peacemakers called sons of God? Because sons resemble their fathers. How do we get hearts like this? How do we get love like this? How do we get righteousness like this? We can't do it on our own. As the Apostle Paul puts it, this type of righteousness cannot be earned. It can't be mustered up. It can only be given by God himself. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe. It's not a self-righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness that's been freely given to us by grace, through faith, to everyone who believes. You know, maybe you're here today and you're kicking the tires on this thing called Christianity. Perhaps you've been caught on the treadmill of behavior modification and sin management, bouncing back and forth between self-righteous pride and self-loathing shame. I want to invite you to step off that treadmill this morning. It's not worth it. It's exhausting. 
I want to invite you to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. I have a heart that's full of anger, a heart that's full of fear. I need a new heart transformed by your love that's full of peace. I can't do it on my own. If that's you, I want to invite you to seek either me out or Pastor Ryan out or the, the, the person that invited you here today that you know is apprenticing the ways of Jesus and ask, hey, can you help me with this? I would love to know how I can be transformed from the inside out rather than the outside in. We would love to talk with you. For those of you who are here this morning, you've already experienced God's love. You've already put your faith in the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf and in your place. Let me remind you that you never graduate from this thing we call the gospel or the good news. It's not only how you come to faith, but it's also how we grow in our faith. I love how Tim Keller puts it. It's not the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A through Z of the Christian life. We need regular reminders of how much God loves us and how God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus so that we can become conduits of that same self-sacrifice, self-sacrificial, others-focused love. As the worship team makes their way back to stage, my invitation to you is to come to the table this morning. Come to the table and remember what Jesus has done for you. We put elements, broken pieces of bread and little cups full of of juice up here that symbolize what Jesus has done for the believer. The broken bread represents his body broken for us on the cross. The blood represents his blood that was spilled for the atonement, for the covering of our sins so that we could have peace with God. This is a symbol of God pursuing us, having compassion on us, pursuing us, bringing reconciliation and making peace with us, the offending party. And as we take these elements this morning, I want you to remember, okay, this is what's been done for me, God. Empower me with your spirit to now go and be called a peacemaker. Go and reflect your love to the world around me. You pray with me. Father, thank you for your reconciling love that was found its full bloom, its full expression in Jesus. You are reconciling the world to yourself through him. We acknowledge that this morning, and we acknowledge that we are the unworthy recipients of that amazing otherworldly grace. And Father, for those of us who have put our faith in you, we recognize that you are calling us to show that same grace to others. It is so hard. We cannot do this on our own. We need you, Jesus. We need the power of your Holy Spirit within us because on our own, at best, we're self-righteous, judgmental hypocrites. We need a new heart. We thank you for your promise that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Continue your work in our hearts as we remind ourselves this morning 
of your love for us. Amen. Go ahead and stand. The worship team is going to lead us in a couple songs. As they do, I invite you to come in groups of about 10 to each of the tables and take communion. You'll be led there as a group. Once your group is done, filter back to your seats and the next group replace them. Come to the table.